Hear now the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's ask God to bless his word for us. Our God, we truly do not know ourselves. Now that we live in this world in the aftermath of sin and death, we need you to speak to us and to show us who we truly are. And what has truly happened to us because of sin? Would you help us to see ourselves truly, but then to throw ourselves upon Christ fully? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. School books have really changed over the years. Uh, I was thinking about this book that was released back in the 1600s in early America. It was called the New England Primer, and it was very influential for children during that time period. One of the reasons it was so important was it, it taught children to read, and the way that it taught them to read was it gave them limericks that rhymed. And so when the children would read it, it would rhyme. And as you know, when you read something that rhymes, there's something pleasant about it, and there's something about it that helps you to remember uh, let me give you a few examples of little limericks that the, 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 the New England Primer used. One was this, the moon shines bright in time of night. Very descriptive, not especially revelatory, but you know, it's, it's a children's book. Um, here's another one. I don't know it would it would fly too well today. Uh, the idle fool is whipped at school. Imagine that one being used in schools today in the school books. <laughs> um, or, or this little gem. I actually love this one. There's a picture of a Bible. And this is all the public, all the, all, I, don't know if, I don't know that you would call it public schools, but all the school children use this book. Thy life to mend, 
this book attend? Right next to a little picture of the Bible. A good little message for children to, know, to, to read. But this is one of the first rhymes in the New England Primer was this deeply biblical limerick. And it actually shows the Puritan heritage of the early American colonies. It, listen to this rhyme. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. And of course, in the book, there's a picture of Adam and Eve standing next to a tree. And there is a serpent there. It was and always has been the conviction of biblical Christianity that this moment in our reading this morning, Genesis chapter 3, is ground zero for the sin in our very hearts and the misery that we experience in the world all around us. This reading, what we just read, is ground zero for all of those miseries that we know today. Next week, we're going to observe the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. But this week, I thought that we might set the stage by focusing on a different kind of supper. Because this passage this morning is about a supper. This passage this morning is about food. It's about a meal that was held out to people. And in this meal that we witnessed this morning, it isn't God that sets the food before them, but it's the serpent And he sets this food before Adam and Eve and he looks at them and he says, take and eat. And the result of this meal is two things, two things that spill out into the world that will sort of uh, identify as our outline this morning. And that is allegation and alienation. Allegation and alienation defines our passage this morning. Now, I think, you know, if if I was to tell you, let's think about sin. Uh, Let's think about how bad our own hearts are. I I think probably you would say to yourself, this isn't going to be the most inspirational morning. Uh, We don't necessarily think there would be a lot of spiritual blessings in thinking well about our own sin or thinking about the fall of man. Um, After all, won't this just make us feel bad about ourselves? And the reality is, yeah, maybe to a degree, but I think there are two opposite errors that you can come to when it, when it comes to the fall of mankind. One of, the, one of the errors is to ignore the fall completely. Um, and I think we should probably admit that for many uh, evangelicals and, and Christians today, they would rather focus on the positive than on the negative. And I do get that. Uh, thinking about our sin makes us feel bad. There's just no way around it. And yet, uh, it, it would be sort of like a person who has cancer who is unwilling to hear the doctor give the diagnosis. It's, you realize this is going to consume you. If, you. if you pretend this isn't real, if you pretend that this is not there, eventually it's going to destroy you. Wouldn't it be better to have the doctor hand you the brochure, explain to you what you have, explain to you how they understand that you got it? And also talk about the cure. Well, that's exactly what we're doing when we talk about the fall, when we talk about sin, when we read Genesis chapter 3. We need to know where this came from, why it happened, and why we are the way we are. But the other end of the spectrum, you know, you have those who want to ignore the fall over here. Let's just keep it positive. Let's find things that will only make people smile. But on the other hand, you, other end of things, you have those who only obsess over sin, only obsess 
over the fall. Um, those who think about the fall so much, they forget about the grace of Christ completely. And they, they so set themselves in the forefront and let themselves dominate the narrative of their life that they miss the reality. Yes, you are terrible. Yes, you are sinful. And yet they can entirely forget that Christ has brought any sort of deliverance at all. And that's a problem. I remember uh, um, knowing a man who was very prayerful. And, and when I would spend time with him in prayer, you, you would hear him speak very with great humility about his own sin and about the evils of his own heart. And yet one of the things I started to realize was a pattern. He very, 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 very rarely would speak of Christ. He would rarely speak of the actual means God has given us to be forgiven. He would say, we're sorry, please forgive us, God. But what you didn't hear was Christ. He was so dominated by his own understanding of himself that he forgot what God had given to us in the first place. And that can be the opposite error if we set our eyes on us and not on Christ. And now I don't remember who said it and I would not know who to attribute it to. But there is a saying For every look you give to yourself, take two looks at Christ. And this morning, let's do that. Let's look at ourselves, but then let's respond by looking doubly to Christ. We're going to do that this morning. We're also going to do it next week as we appreciate the beauty of the Lord's Supper and what it is that God gives us in the Supper. But before we get to the allegations, I want to remind you of something. Before the serpent entered into the garden, Adam and Eve were innocent. Think of this. Ecclesiastes 7.29 says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many inventions. God made man upright. Think about this. This is worth starting with. Um, Thomas Boston gives a, a great illustration of why we need to think about this because he says, if you came upon the ruins of a palace, you might say to yourself, this place used to be a really beautiful palace, but... Imagine if you could have seen it in its heyday. Imagine if you could have seen that palace before it was a jumble of ruins. Um, You see this a lot in Greece, right? If you go to the ruins of of ancient temples and buildings, sometimes all you'll find are a few pillars. And you think to yourself, how interesting, look at all these pillars. And yet, what if you could see that building before it crumbled, before it fell to the ground? You would be even more mournful of the ruins that you were standing in. All of us in the garden were sinless in Adam. We were happy. God uh, proclaimed Adam and Eve good and happy and blessed. We had God's law written on our heart. Uh, We heard it from his mouth. He wrote it on our hearts. We were upright. Uh, Our knowledge was sound. We weren't confused. Our, Our thinking was clear. Uh, Not only did we know what was right, not only did we know what was wrong, but we agreed with it. The Bible says that we were created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. In other words, Adam and Eve were righteous. They were people who didn't just know about God, but they said, yes, God, this is true. I believe it and I love it. We were like that at one point. Before the fall, we were Glorious! Uh, you, you should have seen Adam and Eve. They, they were the prince and princess of the earth, protectors of the garden. They had tranquility and joy in their hearts. They had perfect calm. If you are troubled by anxiety, imagine this. There was a day and an age when people didn't have anxiety. 
They didn't have fear. Nothing annoyed us. Adam and Eve never got on each other's nerves in the Garden of Eden. When God spoke, we accepted his will for our lives. We loved the blessings that he brought our way. Not only that, but we were immortal. We would never have died. We would have kept living and being fruitful and multiplying and having children and spreading over the earth if we hadn't sinned. If this moment in our reading hadn't happened today. And this is what makes uh, our fall so absolutely dreadful. You see, the place that we came from just makes our destination that much more terrifying and even pathetic. But you know this, it all begins with one individual introduced into the narrative. It is a serpent. And the serpent enters the garden and what happens? First in the reading this morning, we have allegations. Now, The allegations begin in a subtle way. So the serpent seemingly catches Eve alone, for a moment at least. Adam comes into the picture a little later. But the serpent asks Eve this question, and it's immediately so sneaky. He says, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? He's already twisted. He's already twisted what God said. He's asking her to confirm a falsehood. He's saying, did God actually say, you shall not eat any tree of the garden? Her answer shouldn't have been yes or no. She should have said, that is the wrong question. And of course, the correct answer is no, he did not actually say that. There's an allegation against God buried in the question from the very beginning. Here's the allegation. God doesn't want you to eat. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want what's best for you. Instead, He states the opposite of the way God originally stated it. Originally, it said, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And he comes to Eve and says, is it true that you're not allowed to eat? Is it true that God wants you to go hungry? And so Eve, the the queen of the garden, the mother of us all, she corrects the serpent, but not correctly. She recounts what God says, but she puts it negatively. And then she adds her own ideas to the command. She says, he told us, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it. Lest you die. That's a new phrase. God never said they couldn't touch the tree. Now, I think it may have been a wise idea not to touch the tree, but he did not tell them that. That was not his command. And so you see the allegation begins with the serpent, but then it almost comes from her as well. God is too harsh. He's too restrictive. He's cruel. He doesn't doesn't love us. And then the allegations really ramp up. After she says... God told them they would surely die if they even touched the tree. Satan throws off all pretenses of being some casual observer. He's not afraid anymore. He's absolutely bold. And he says to her, God is a liar. You will not surely die. He's a trickster. He's lied to you. He's a deceiver. He's not being forthright with you. He's hiding information. He's sneaky. 
And then it gets worse. He begins to weave a narrative for Eve, something she had never heard before and something that would never have crossed her mind until now. Listen to what he says. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That is a brand new story. He didn't get it from God. He got it from himself because he's the deceiver. And this is such a wretched moment. This is such a wicked moment. He compounds his lies with more allegations. Think about the allegation now. He says, God is selfish. He's keeping this knowledge to himself. He's keeping something from you. He knows something so wonderful that he can't bear to share it with you. Think about how bad this really is. They have been placed in this garden. They have been given everything that they need. They have been given each other. They've been given fellowship with God. Everything that a human being could possibly ever need. Every satisfaction supplied. And Satan tells her, God is still holding back. He doesn't love you. He sees you as his rival. You are like competition for him. He put you here. He set these rules. He wants to hem you in because he wants to treat you like a plaything that doesn't matter. He's hemming you in. He's holding you back. You are capable of so many great things, Eve. You are enough, Eve. And he presses And he stokes the fires of ambition. God knows you could be something so great if you would just throw off his shackles. If only you could just forget those rules that he's given to you, you would flourish. You would fly. And then he'd look at you and he'd see how wrong he was and he would try to stop you. And maybe he would even say he was sorry and he was wrong. And I want you to notice something. Not only are these all lies, but they don't deliver. We don't know sin any better than we did before. We aren't any happier. We aren't any fuller. We don't know more. We aren't better off at all. See, Adam and Eve, they take the fruit. And the moment that they do, it seals all their suspicions forever. It says, I do believe this. And I have stopped believing the truth. And the moment it happens, their natures are changed forever. They are plunged into sickness and ruin and sin and all of their children as well because he was our representative. He was the one that stood in our place. In Adam's fall, we sinned all. You see, they believed the lie and they rejected the truth. They believed that they wouldn't die if they ate that fruit, even though he told them Exactly the opposite. They believed that God was a liar. They believed that God was holding back and that he wasn't really good. They believed that God was really their enemy and that he had deceived them. And they believed the serpent was really the good one and was really their friend. I'll tell you one thing. It sounds like a parable of our times. Um, It's difficult to imagine a time when people had greater moral ambition to put themselves in God's place and carve out their own system of right and wrong, truly set themselves in God's place and call him a liar 
than the day we live in. Uh, if this passage wasn't history, I'd think it was the greatest parable of 2019 Western civilization that had ever been written. Because ours is a day when people trust their own hearts more than ever and trust God far less than they ever have. Adam and Eve trusted their hearts and they took the fruit because they had an ambition to be like God. They had an ambition to know like God, to understand good and evil the way that God does. But this isn't just about others. This isn't just about us looking at Adam and Eve. If you get angry when you think of Adam and Eve and you think to yourself, man, if I was in that place, I wouldn't have done that. Then you don't know yourself. Because we reenact this moment over and over and over every single time, every single day when we pick sin, even when we know it doesn't please God. This is not so far from each and every one of us. We are not victims or bystanders of the fall. He was our head too. This sin is ours too. And the result of their ambition and the result of our ambition is a broken promise. They see their nakedness, but they don't understand their sin. The promise, they would, they would know good and evil. It was a lie. They're more confused now than ever. They don't even understand what's happened to themselves. They see their nakedness and they think, what on earth is going on? Are any of us one lick closer to really understanding sin and wickedness just because we do it? If you think that, listen to Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The answer is we can't understand it. We sin and we're wicked and we don't understand it. This knowledge has not happened. This knowledge we thought we were going to have of evil has not manifested itself. We are very disappointed. This was a bad bargain. We're not any closer to understanding good and evil just because we do it. Uh, think about this. Does a, does a person who is psychotic understand the human mind better just because he's been to the deepest, worst depths of it? Uh, does somebody who's drowning understand water better than somebody who's standing on the shore? Somebody understand a hamburger better just because they're choking on it? No. Throwing ourselves into the trouble of misery and sin doesn't mean that we know good and evil any better than we did. It just means now we experience its effects and don't get why it's happening. In fact, it, it made us more biased. It made us... Uh, actually lose our ability to think clearly about goodness and evil. And the result is like the day like we live in right now. Meanwhile, God knows good and evil, and he has never done evil. You see, we don't have to do something in order to know it. Satan lied to them. Satan leveled accusation after allegation against God, and we believe it. Like suckers, we bought it. Like fools, we rejected God's word, and we believed the serpent's word, and we discarded God's wisdom, and we embraced our own perverse style of wisdom. And so what happens first in this passage? The allegations. The allegations come, and they're piled up, and we buy every single one of them. The second result of the devil's supper we see this morning is alienation. Alienation. So the temptation 
already had alienation baked into it because the serpent says, God is your enemy. He doesn't love you. He doesn't like you. He doesn't want you to be happy. He's selfish. He's all about him. He doesn't care about you. And if they take that fruit, they're believing all of these things about God. They're alienated from him as soon as they do. And the result, of course, was a laundry list of miseries that show how much we've been alienated from God. Um, our natures were corrupted. And now our, our natures, uh, they, they produce evil. Genesis 6 says that every imagination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually after the fall. And now as a result, what's happened? Our heart is corrupted to the core. Our imaginations are evil. We can actually be presented with no temptation. We can actually be sitting by ourselves and evil things will just come into our head. That never would have happened with Adam and Eve before the fall. We can just sit there and bad things can happen in our head. Unbidden, unwelcomed, uninvited. Our thoughts are evil. Our hearts are evil. We don't even want the right things anymore. We are bent. We're all wrong now. Uh, remember, uh, evil is anything that's against God. Anything that comes through loud and that comes through loud and clear in the text, and it comes through when Adam and Eve believed what uh, about God what they did when they took the fruit. God is our enemy. We have to look out for ourselves now because we can't trust Him to do it. He put us in this garden, gave us everything, and he still held back. And we see this alienation show up very early on because in verse 8, it says, They heard the sound of Yahweh walking in the garden, and it says, The man and his wife hid themselves from, from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the first act of Adam and Eve after they take the fruit, and it says fruit, not apple, you stop drawing pictures of apples. Apples are good and they're yummy. Uh, this was probably a, a, a durian or something that stinks. Um, their, their first act is not to, to rise to meet their maker. Father, welcome to the garden that you put us in. Now their first reaction is to retreat. Their first, their first reaction isn't fellowship, it's not togetherness, it's separation, it's shame, it's fear. Look at Adam's expression, he says, I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Can you think about this? After the fall, what is the very first response, human emotion that we see? The first response is fear. It's not relief. It's not joy. It's not delight. It's not worship. It's fear. The very first feeling that a human being has after the, after the fall is fear. And it's been with us ever since. If you know fear in your life, if you know anxiety in your life, ground zero for your anxiety and fear is right here. It's the words of a man who has already lost fellowship with God. He's already separated from God. Why would he be afraid of God? Because they're no longer friends. They've been alienated. He's afraid of him now. Uh, before he was just jealous of him. Now he's afraid. He doesn't fear God. He's afraid of God. Because he's separated from him. He's guilty. He has accused the perfect, holy 
good God of the universe of evil. Imagine that accusation. I once heard an atheist say, the Christian God is evil. And he meant it with all sincerity in his heart. And I trembled for the man when I heard him say it. I thought of the seriousness of that blasphemy. And here is Adam, and he's saying the same thing in this moment. God is evil. He does not love. He is selfish. And because of that, now he's confronted by him, and he's afraid because he realizes that belief about God is the exact thing that's tearing him apart from him. And they're alienated from him, and now the Bible says we are by nature children of wrath. And this means that we are each and every one of us were born with that same corrupted nature that Adam and Eve had when they fell. He was our representative. We stood to gain everything if he had kept God's law and we stood to lose it all if he disobeyed and we know which one he chose. And we didn't just lose fellowship with God. We lost fellowship with each other too. Look what happens to Adam and Eve's relationship. First relationship conflict that happens in the Bible is between Adam and God, but the second one is between Adam and Eve. She doesn't get to talk, but you can see the bickering going on here. This woman, he blames her, whom you gave me, he blames God. She gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. They don't stand together. You can almost picture how he moves away from her as he, as he says it. She did this. She gave me the fruit. It's her. You can see his cowardice. You can see he's not a man. He's not willing to face what he's done. He wants to push the blame. And when he does it, he's alienated from his wife even. She becomes like a scapegoat to him. She becomes someone to carry the blame for him. And then we still see that strained relationship continue because not only does God say, there's going to be marital strife here. It's going to be hard for you guys to get along with each other. Not only does God say that, but then their son, Cain, kills his brother Abel. They're set against each other now. They see each other as enemies of now. Everyone becomes a rival to the person who thinks he should be on the throne. Think about how sin has ruined human relationships. I would be very surprised if you have not had human relationships that have been ruined by sin. And I can think of friends that I have lost because they decided to fall deeply into sin and never come back. Uh, I was speaking to someone at General Assembly just this last week. And one of the things that he, that he said to me was that he'd been talking to an RUF minister. And this RUF minister said that what would happen to him as he's ministering, as he's pastoring, is these young uh, college students would come to him. And a young man would come to him and say, you know, I'm having doubts about God. And, and the, 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 the pastor would say, okay, well, let's respond to this. Let's think through apologetics. Let's talk about the existence of God. Let's talk about the historical evidence for Jesus And after a while, he realized a new pattern. And so he said to my friend, he said, now when a young man comes to me and says he's doubting the faith, the first answer that he gives is, what's her name? And the reason he said he does that is because he discovered this is not a crisis of faith. This is a crisis of sin. The doubt comes because you have something in your life that you really, really want and you know God's in the way. 
And I have had friends from childhood that I have lost that relationship because of sin. Uh, When my wife and daughter went to New York City this last year, they were specifically told, don't look people in the face. Don't talk to people. Don't talk to strangers. People will come up to you in the street and offer you free things. Don't take it because if you do and you don't give them money, they'll spit in your face. You just see the manifestation of separated relationships right there in your life. And each of us have seen this before. What has the devil's supper ever done for us? All it's done is break promises and bring lies. It's brought alienation between us and God, and it's separated us from each other. From the very first moment sin entered into the world, it promised us things it could never deliver. Uh, The serpent told them, you're not going to die. And then they definitely died. That was a lie. He said, your eyes are going to be open, but we've never been more blind. He told them, you will know good and evil, and yet we're no closer to understanding sin than we were when we were innocent in the garden. And sin still makes empty, unfulfilled promises to us. It's okay to break your marriage vows. Maybe no one will know. This will take away your emptiness. This will make you feel love. Sin says, God hasn't given you enough. You, you have what it takes. Uh, you can take what you want in this world for yourself. God's not going to look out for you. We tell ourselves that. And it only leads to a never-ending want and desire for more. Listen, our hearts are like black holes, and you can throw anything you want into it, and it will always say, what's next? What else do you have for me? Sin says, focus on yourself. These other people are just in the way. And yet God says that sort of inner life is going to consume you and steal the purpose you were made for. Not only does sin fail to keep its promises, but it's ruined us. It's ruined the world. It's ruined our relationships with one another. It's separated us from God. It's left us empty. It's made us a people who love ourselves, turned our hearts in all the wrong directions, and set us against the Creator. None of the promises that the serpent made came true. Not even in a technical sense. We don't know sin any better just because we do it. In fact, we're more blinded to it now than we ever have been. Now we sin and we aren't even conscious of it. That's how good we are at it. We sin and don't even know it. You get to the end of every day. If you tried to think of every sin you committed and repent to God, I guarantee you, you would miss at least ten. Sin promised us life, but look around yourself at the wars, the death, the sickness, depression, the misery of this world, and ask yourself whether that promise was ever kept. At every point, sin has devastated us within and without. Here's what I want to do, though. I want you to see this, the gospel hope. Because no sooner does the fruit of the devil's supper show itself in the lives of Adam and Eve than God extends his hand in grace to Adam and Eve. You see, he doesn't destroy them. Instead, he makes a sacrifice and he clothes them and he makes a promise to them. In verse 15, he says, I'm going to send a seed. And that seed is going to crush this dumb serpent's head into the ground. And thousands of years later, that seed would enter the world. And the promise that he made to Adam, you shall surely die, happened to the seed instead. And that's Christ. Christ experienced the curse that Adam was supposed to receive. You shall surely die. And when he did that, the serpent's head was crushed. And that seed brought a supper of his own. 
See, the serpent, what does he do in the garden? He extends the fruit to Eve, as it were, and he says, take and eat. And death enters the world. And in our passage this morning, take and eat are words of death. When you hear those words, take and eat, they are bad words here. But next week, we're going to do something else. We're going to remember a different meal. Because thousands of years later, the seed that God promised to his children sat at a table, reclined at a table, and extended a piece of bread. And he said, take and eat. This is my body broken for you. The devil's supper cost him nothing. The Lord's supper cost Christ everything. The devil's supper was empty. The the Lord's supper gave us fullness. I'm going to end this morning on a quote from Derek Kidner that really brings this all together. And I'm going to read it very slowly because what he says is so potent if we get it. Here is what he says about the serpent tempting Adam and Eve. He says, so simple the act, so hard it's undoing. God will taste poverty and death before take and eat become verbs of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, you remind us in Scripture that the wages of sin is death. And you've reminded us from your word this morning that our situation is far darker and more troubling than we may often be willing to admit, either to ourselves, to one another, or to you. Would you give us an honest appraisal of our own heart? But then, for every look that we take at ourselves, would you give us two looks at your Son, the Savior of mankind? the promised seed, the rescuer that you had always planned, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.